I just want to take a moment and thank God uh, for the team of volunteers we have up here every Sunday. You know, they often make it look easy. Sometimes they stumble a little. And I found it interesting this morning, even as they were stumbling, the opening line was, Your grace reached out to me. And, and I want to remind us that as we are surrounded by volunteers and, and folks that continue to give and to serve, it's important for us to be gracious with each other. Um, and, but I just want to glorify God today that just over these past few months, the number of folks that have stepped up and are new, new in leadership at worship this morning and, and uh, new playing different instruments, it's, it's been... Um, been encouraging and so so thank you I, I rather than clapping for them i want you to give a, a praise offering to god for for their service this morning would you i'm going to move this back a little because i feel like i'm going to run into it if i'm not careful here so last week as we began before i began um our our message i addressed the news in particular, the topic of abortion and, and the news that had come out regarding the Supreme Court. And the reason I did that, as I shared, if you weren't here last week, is I feel that it's, it's critical that the church speak to times when, when the gospel clearly comes into conflict um, or intersects issues around us. Um, I am not one that's prone to deviate from a study through the book of, a Bible, or a book of the Bible to address issues that are going on in the world around us, and I'm not going to do that this morning. Um, however, I find ourselves this morning at yet another one of those moments where I think you need to hear from a pastor, you need to hear from the pulpit regarding events that took place just yesterday. Yesterday, an 18-year-old traveled nearly 200 miles from a little town near where I actually grew up in upstate New York. And from what we're told, he went into a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. I know the area well because I pastored near Buffalo for years, and it appears that He shot and killed 10 people in what was, it seems, so far to be a clearly racially motivated act. Church, this morning, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to be mourning with those who mourn. Our hearts ought to be broken at this awful loss of life. And we need to be praying for those who have lost loved ones and for the community of Buffalo and for those who are hurting today in the light of this horror that has unfolded. We also need to, as disciples of Jesus Christ, faithful to the word of God, we need to reject and stand against racism. Scripture clearly teaches that human beings, every human being, is created in the image of God. And that means every color, every race, every tribe, every nation. And it is inexcusable for any Christian to hold to any worldview that elevates one race or one color over another. This week, I want to ask you to be on your knees, and I want to be, ask you to be praying for those who are hurting. And if you have the opportunity to speak to this issue, I want to pray that you will boldly proclaim with gospel clarity that racism is wrong. And then when John 3.16 says that God so loved the world, it means the world. It means every, every human being, because every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being is stained by original sin, Every human being is in need of redemption and behavior that contradicts that word that God so loved the world, all of the world, any behavior that contradicts that should be adamantly rejected by followers of Christ. So before we open God's word, would you pray with me for just a moment? 
God, this morning as we come together as a church, we never want to be blind to the events of the world around us. Nor do we want them to control the narrative that we, we proclaim here. For that, that's not why we gather. We gather to go through your word, and yet we know that your word speaks clearly and, um, and powerfully to the events of the world around us. And this morning, our hearts are heavy even as the news continues to unfold of this tragedy, this horror that took place. We pause, first of all, because you said that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We are to mourn with those who mourn, and we pray this morning for the families, for the neighborhood, for the, the friends of those who lost their life yesterday in this mass shooting. We ask, Lord, that your grace would be sufficient your peace that passes understanding would be present and that, that those who do not know you might be drawn to you through this horrible, horrible situation. We pray for the family of this 18-year-old who is being charged with this crime. Um, God, I, I pray that through this you might comfort them in a way that we couldn't begin to understand. I pray, too, for the community of Buffalo. I pray for our nation. Lord, I pray because I know that in the days to come, there will be more hateful rhetoric. There will be those who, who stand and say horrible things on both sides of these issues. And I pray that through it all, that the church of Jesus Christ, those committed to, to biblical Christianity, would be faithful in their witness, a witness that stands against racism, a witness that stands in the testimony that you love each and every human being. You created us all in your image, and we are all in need of salvation. I pray that the conversations that go on in our church, in our families, in our neighborhoods in which we are involved would be different than the conversations that go on in the world around us, that we would be salt and light, and that we might bring truth and healing and grace where it needs to be brought. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention toward this letter in the book of Revelation, as we continue in our study, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in your sight will be pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you're joining us for the first time this morning in at least a few weeks, we are in week number four of a seven-week series in the book of Revelation. In particular, we're looking at the seven letters that are addressed to the seven churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And this morning, I want to look at a lesser-known church in a little-known city, but a church that received the longest letter of all seven. Let's open our Bibles and read the letter together. We're going to be turning to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 18 through 29. And as these are the words of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you once again to stand for this reading. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, I'll be reading to you from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. 
I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces." even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. Children, if you are still with us, you are dismissed to go to Calvary Kids as everyone is seated. So let's begin thinking about the city of Thyatira. Of all the seven cities addressed in Revelation, Thyatira was the least significant city, yet the city to which Jesus had the most to say. In comparison to the other cities, we actually know very little about this city of Thyatira. As such, it makes interpretation of this letter a little more difficult than it has been over the past few weeks. And it leaves some questions unanswered. As far as geography, we know that Thyatira was located approximately 40 miles from the city of Pergamum, which we addressed and studied last week. Thyatira was originally a military outpost. Military members think of FOB in today's language. When it was founded, its purpose was to serve as a first line of defense for Pergamum the capital city. So just imagine you're a resident of Pergamum and you know if an, if an enemy ever comes, there's no way you're going to survive. You are to be a speed bump for the capital city as the enemy makes its way through just to slow things down a bit. As such, it had been ravaged by numerous battles throughout the ages. As far as geography, the city of Thyatira was quite unremarkable. While other cities had great coastlines or springs to boast about or mountains, not Thyatira. No, Thyatira had nothing but level ground bordered by gentle hills. Sounds a little like San Antonio, doesn't it? Well, once an important military outpost under the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, as it was called, its military significance had diminished and it found new importance in its location on the convergence of several roads. As such, Thyatira became a center of production and a center of marketing. It was known for its purple dye for its cloth production and manufacturing, for its wool, for its pottery, for its bronze. In fact, there's a word that is unique in Greek literature that's used in the text, which indicates a certain type of refined bronze, pointing to a process that Thyatira had, had come up with, which produced a bronze of unmatched strength. Because of its industry, the city of Thyatira, it was known for its trade guilds, 
and for its associations, for potters, dyers, and bronze workers. And in order to work in any of these industries, to be one of the laborers in those industries, you had to belong to one of these guilds, to one of these unions. But belonging to them presented Christians with a dilemma. You see, each of these trade guilds or labor unions had their own patron deity, kids their own god. Each of these unions, each of these associations had their own God that they worshipped, and belonging to one of those guilds meant that members had to participate in that worship and to celebrate in feasts, which were oftentimes idolatrous, and they included sexual revelries. Now, I've never been a part of a trade guild or a labor union, but my dad was. My dad, who died five years ago now, was, was a machinist all his life. And as a boy, I remember times when he would be out of work and he and his fellow workers would be on strike. His labor union would be standing up for things, things like better wages, better health insurance, more vacation time. And everyone that was a part of that union had to hit the picket line in solidarity. The problem was during the strike, there was no pay. And if any employee decided to cross that line and go back to work, they were ostracized and lost the benefits and the protection of that union. The cost involved in crossing the line could be greater in the long run than the sacrifices my dad and his fellow employees made during a strike. It must have been similar for those in Thyatira. If they'd hoped to keep their jobs, if they'd hoped to make a good living, if they'd hoped to not be ostracized by their bosses, by their managers, their supervisors, and by those that they worked with, they were pressured to toe the line, to toe the, the party line of the trade guild, and to do what everyone else was doing in their shop. You ever been in a place like that? Some of you are every day already. You work in environments where the norm is offensive language or the lack of integrity. Talk in the break room is all about sexual conquest over the weekend or parties that were attended. And if you're not bragging about your adventures, there's something wrong with you. When you won't cut corners or you won't leave early when the boss isn't watching, you're accused of being a brown nose or you're ridiculed for being a goody two-shoes. The pressure you face each and every day to conform is immense. And while you don't necessarily want to be a part of that group, it sure would be nice if you weren't mistreated and you weren't made to feel as if you didn't belong. Some of you can very closely relate to the struggle of a Christian in Thyatira because their struggle is your struggle. Well, turn back to the text and let's see how Christ identifies himself. Remember, in each of these letters so far, Christ has identified himself uniquely. And the same, again, happens here. This is what he says in verse 18. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I want you to get that picture in your mind. Eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What we see here is that Christ identifies himself as the divine judge. 
This is the only time, interestingly, in the entire book of Revelation that the title Son of God is used. It may be because Apollo was the main deity of the city of Thyatira, and he was the Son, S-U-N, God. It may also be an allusion to the fact that there was an attempt to equate Christ with other deities. And so Christ says, no, I am the Son of God. The letter continues, who has eyes like a flame of fire, a reminder that Christ has the ability to look straight through you. We see this throughout the Gospels over and over again when Jesus would look at someone and see their heart, see their motives, see their desires. This is a reference, and the feet like burnished bronze is a reference to the refined metals of their furnaces, and it points to the strength of Jesus Christ. And so to a church that lives and works around numerous patron deities, Jesus says, I am the only deity that you need. Why would you turn to the sun God when I'm the one who created the sun? I see your thoughts and your actions, and as I walk among you, I am strong enough to handle any situation that I encounter. I am the divine judge. Jesus then turns his attention to commending the church. Verse 19 continues, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Six commendations in all, works, love, faith, service, patience, and doing more. This is not an unimpressive list. In the midst of a culture in which it was increasingly unpopular to be a Christian, this church remains faithful. This church continues to be loving. It continues to serve. It continues to persevere. And what's more impressive is that they are doing more now than they did at first. That's impressive because our normal habit is exactly the opposite. It's to slack off. It's to get less and less involved. It's to be less loving, to be less faithful, growing. It's the same way in a marriage, if you think about it, and other relationships. The tendency is to become stagnant. Growing in a relationship requires immense work and dedication, The tendency, though, is to do what it takes to get by to maintain what you have. And Jesus says, no, this church never fell into that temptation that not only have they maintained their relationship with Christ, they've grown. And for that, Jesus says, I commend you, church of Thyatira. This is a church in love with God and with people. Wouldn't the world be a better place if there were more churches like Thyatira? More churches that continue to grow in love and faith. More churches uh, about which the community would say, say, boy, when that that church was planted, they were great. They loved their community. But 10 years later, they love us even more than they did 10 years ago. Wouldn't it be amazing if every church existed to serve the needs of the community around them, if every church patiently endured hardships and trials, and if every church not only did this but actually improved day after day, year after year, Let me get even more direct. Wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't Northwest San Antonio be a better place if churches like our own could be commended for the same? Only Christ can see our hearts and our deeds. Only Christ can judge our actions. But I wonder whether the same could be said of Calvary Hills Baptist Church. Sadly, the letter doesn't end with these commendations. This church has some major problems. 
What follows is a very strange condemnation, some of which we can understand and other parts of which we can only speculate. If you're taking notes on your outline, what we see here to summarize it is a spirit of permissive tolerance, a permissive spirit of tolerance. Look at verses 20 to 23. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. When we come across paragraphs like this, we've got to go back to what I've been highlighting over the past few weeks, and and that is the way that you interpret this. You see, there's language here that's full of metaphors, that's full of images from times past, from the Old Testament, and this is one of those cases. Jesus says, he begins by saying, they tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, we know from studies that Jezebel was not a Greco-Roman name, nor was it a Jewish name. In fact, a Jew naming their daughter Jezebel would have been like one of you naming your son Judas Iscariot. Jezebel was a notorious figure from the Old Testament. What's clear here is that while the letter may be referring to a particular woman, the Old Testament figure Jezebel is used as a metaphor to describe her actions. Here's a little Old Testament history, take you back to the days of your childhood Sunday school lessons perhaps. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab during the days of the divided land of Israel. She was condemned by Elijah the prophet for encouraging her people to worship Baal. She taught that it didn't hurt to worship another god. Why not get the most out of every god, after all? Cover all of your bases. And so Jesus refers to a woman in this church of Thyatira who's like Jezebel, and he says that they've tolerated her. Now, that's a tough word for those in 2022, isn't it? Our culture values tolerance, and we see the lack of tolerance as a sin. So what's Jesus talking about? We're going to come back to tolerance more, so um, just put that one on pause. But before we do, let's look at what Jesus points out regarding this woman Jezebel and her teachings, which the church have tolerated. He addresses two things in particular that Jezebel is teaching her followers to practice. She's telling them first to eat meat sacrificed to idols. See, when these Christians in Thyatira, when they'd go to any of their, their, their parties together with their co-workers, with these trade guilds and unions, meat sacrificed to idols would be put on the grill. That's what would be served. And it seemed like this woman, whoever she was, was saying something like, listen, you know the deity isn't real. Okay? That meat is no different than any other meat. It's all about the value that you attach to the meat, right? It can't really hurt you to eat that meat, so don't worry about it. She's also telling them that they could go ahead and participate in the sexual revelries that were a part of these festivities. Now, maybe they didn't all out participate. Maybe they were just present. Perhaps they were just bystanders when these activities took place. Maybe rather than removing themselves and making a statement or, or causing an uprising or 
or raising people's dander, perhaps they just, just kind of stood by and said nothing. When one of the other men at the party was receiving some sort of sexual favor, perhaps they, they just stood by and were quiet. They weren't necessarily on the receiving end, maybe, of any of these sexual acts, but they also weren't stepping away from it. Apparently, this woman Jezebel, she's called, is excusing both of these types of behavior. And through her charismatic leadership, she is convincing those who followed her that it's okay. They must have struggled at one point, otherwise there would have been no need for the convincing. But Jezebel has led them to a place where they're okay with these things taking place. And Jesus says, church, you tolerate her and you tolerate her teaching that these things are all right. She's leading my sheep astray and you are doing nothing about her. The tolerance is less about the sin in this passage than it is the teaching that compromise is okay. The text indicates that this is a gravely serious matter. The reference to Jezebel indicates they are committing spiritual idolatry. They're cheating, not on their spouses, but on God himself. And Jesus says he's given her a chance to repent, but she hasn't done it, and so he's going to cast her on a bed of suffering with her lovers and children. Read her followers and disciples. What's meant there is not sure. Commentators differ and disagree. But whether it's physical suffering or some sort of spiritual death, Jesus says, I mean business. And just in case any in the church think that they're hiding, and then Jesus doesn't know about their actions, doesn't know about their sins of tolerance, he reminds them in verse 23b that he is the one who searches mind and heart and will give to each according to their works. He is the divine judge. He sees all things. He knows all things. How did a church, how did a church with such an impressive resume slip into a place of such severe criticism and despicable tolerance? And how do we ensure that the same thing doesn't happen to us today? In a message on this pastor, or on a message on this passage from a pastor of a Calvary um, Chapel congregation, Pastor Pilgrim Benham suggested five ways a church can slip into such tolerance. And I thought they were so good that I wanted to, to quote him and reference them today. If you're following along in your outlines, you can fill them in. First, a church becomes tolerant when there is a desire to fit in with the culture. In a day and age in which we're told that we can't really know anything for sure, that the truth is not only subjective, but ultimately that your truth can be different than my truth, that we need to be on the right side of history, there can be a strong desire to fit in with culture. In a day when corporations are taking stances on social issues like we've never seen before in our history, and a day when the beliefs that we hold to be true are growing increasingly unpopular, it's tempted to let down your guard and just swim with the flow, not keep on trying to swim upstream. A church falls into this type of dangerous tolerance when its desire to fit in with the culture is greater than its desire to fit in with the kingdom of God. Second, a church becomes tolerant when there is a failure to rightly define sin. We've talked about this in weeks past, but we are a part of a culture in which calling sin, sin is unpopular, in which it's called hateful, 
It's called, it's offensive. In an attempt then to, to not be hateful, what Christians have done is we've come up with new words for sin. We call them struggles. We call them diseases. We call them disorders, just to name a few. And while we're at it, we've redefined the word tolerance. In D.A. Carson's book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, he brings us back to the original word tolerance, and he suggests that we could, well, we could say we have old tolerance and we have new tolerance. The traditional word for tolerance meant, I may disagree with you, but I insist on your right to articulate your opinion, no matter how stupid or ignorant I think it is. I would suggest most of us would say, we agree with that form of tolerance. In fact, it's, it, it's, it's found in the, the First Amendment. We have a freedom of speech. But the new tolerance, it's very different. It involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism. It holds that every individual's beliefs, lifestyle, and perception of truth are equal. That there is no hierarchy of truth. That your beliefs and my beliefs are equal and that all truth is relevant. If we adopt the new form of tolerance, the only thing we could properly call wrong, the only thing we could properly label as sin would be a lack of tolerance as defined by this new way of thinking. We become tolerant in the way that Christ despised when we stop calling sin, sin. Third, a church becomes tolerant when it forsakes absolute truth for relativism. A 2020 study from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University showed that some 58% of the Americans that were surveyed no longer believe in absolute moral truth. Instead, those surveyed indicated that it's up to the individual to decide what is true or what is valid, what is moral. And shockingly, evangelicals were only 2% less likely to reject absolute truth than non-Christians. The influencers of culture are telling us that it's wrong to insist on one version of truth, that it's ignorant, that it's hateful to say that someone else's beliefs or actions are wrong. Tolerance today means that all positions are equally valid, that your truth is as valid as my truth, and that beliefs, your beliefs are as valid as my beliefs, that there's no need, say proponents of this new tolerance, to call anyone's beliefs or versions of truth invalid. Here's the thing, that line of thinking falls apart. We've seen its fallacy in the aftermath of the attack on Ukraine. If there is no absolute truth, then how can we call the acts of Vladimir Putin wrong? How can we identify them as evil? After all, isn't he just living out his version of the truth? His beliefs? His convictions? And yet the same people who say, live your truth and I'll live mine, have decried the actions of Putin as being wicked. Ladies and gentlemen, as gospel-centric Christians, the problem with buying into that way of thinking is that Jesus clearly says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He made no, he made no allowances for relativism. The gospel confronts us with a choice. Either we take Christ's claims seriously or we throw them out altogether. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. His claims don't allow any wiggle room. Believing his claims mean 
means that we cannot at the same time embrace everyone's truth as equally valid to Jesus' truth. Fourth, a church becomes tolerant when there is a movement from closed-handed issues to open-handed issues. See, as biblically-minded Christians, we believe that there are certain issues that like-minded believers have prayed about, they've studied over, but, but they disagree over. Issues where Scripture may not be crystal clear. I may see it clearly, and you may differ with me on this. And as a result, believers have interpreted them differently. They might include, hold on to your seats, the mode of baptism, the place of tongues in the church, the rapture, and many others. We call those issues open-handed issues. Sometimes they may result in different denominations, but in the end, this may be a shocker to some of you, there are Christians in other denominations who will be in heaven. Is that a shocker to any of you? <laughs> you don't have to be Baptist. It's a good thing to be Baptist, but you don't have to be a Baptist to get to heaven. You can fire me, that's okay. Um, I didn't get a lot of amens there, so that scares me. But then there are other issues that are not up for discussion. Issues where Scripture is unequivocally clear. They are non-negotiable doctrines, like the perfection and trustworthiness of the Bible. God is the triune creator and redeemer. The sinfulness of humanity, Jesus' sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection for us, and salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. We call those issues closed-handed issues. And the problem is today many churches have begun to move some of those key closed-handed issues and doctrines into open-handed issues. And when that happens, a church becomes guilty of the type of tolerance for which Thyatira was condemned. Finally, a church becomes tolerant when there is a failure to take a stand for truth. Last week, one of you texted me and thanked me for addressing abortion from the pulpit. Thank you for that encouragement. Well, I appreciate that. It's sad that a pastor should even have to be thanked for speaking the truth. Truth must be proclaimed from the pulpit if it is to be disseminated through the lives of believers. Please, Calvary Hills, never, ever allow any of your pastors who serve here or in any other place to be excused from the responsibility of speaking the truth and speaking it with boldness. Because when we are silent and we tolerate the feel-good, everyone-is-okay way of thinking of our culture, heresy infiltrates the church. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. We can't be like the church of Thyatira and stand by and tolerate the behavior and teaching of those like Jezebel. We've got to be guardians of the truth. Come back to the text with me in verse 24. Just as has been the case in all the previous letters we've looked at so far, Jesus doesn't conclude his correspondence with condemnation. Look at what he says. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching. In other words, not the, the entire church didn't hold this teaching around tolerance. Now, those of you who did not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. 
Jesus says to those of you who haven't gone astray, hold tight to what you have. In other words, keep your feet firmly planted. Don't lose your devotion. Don't lose your love. Don't lose your faith. Don't lose your perseverance. Don't start compromising and don't tolerate anyone who tells you or the rest of the church that compromise is okay. If you do, here's the consolation. A share in the kingdom for those who overcome. Look at verses 26 to 28. The one who conquers, Jesus says, and who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. There are two promises here made to victorious ones. They're obscure ones that aren't entirely clear, so there's a lot of interpretation around this. The first, though, has to do with authority. It seems that Jesus is saying to the Christians who seem powerless in Thyatira, one day you will have authority. And when he says they'll dash them to pieces like pottery, an image they were familiar with in this city, he may be referring to those to whom the church was in helpless subjection. This is a promise that they will share in his rule of the nations. And the last promise was that they would be given the morning star. Probably refers to Jesus Christ himself. It's most certainly a reference to something that early readers understood but seems to have been lost in translation today. So there's a lot to get your head around in this passage. If, you're, if your mind's kind of swimming and you're, there's just a lot there, let me help you summarize it quickly. The church is experiencing tremendous pressure in the workplace and in the community around them. And whether they were actively participating or just standing by while sin occurred, it was being justified by one of their own, a woman called Jezebel. The woman Jezebel said something like this, it's okay, you can compartmentalize your life. You can have your public life, your private life, your church life. You can be a Christian and be a part of these guilds. You know these gods aren't real gods. Just keep that in mind. You don't have to take them too seriously. Compromise is okay. And the church, some in the church, were tolerating her teaching. Third, the church tolerated this teaching and Jesus won't. And finally, the faithful are encouraged that if they'll hold on, Jesus will give them a share in the kingdom. So what's this letter have to do with us today? How does it apply to you and I? How do these teachings of Jezebel make a difference to us in the 21st century? I think it's actually very relevant. See, living out our faith in the workplace and the community is becoming increasingly challenging for us today, even here in the United States of America. How do we live out our faith without compromising and without buying into the new definition of tolerance? How do you live out your faith as a business owner when you are forced to pay for health insurance that covers abortion? How do you live out your faith when you are forced to fight for the right to not celebrate something you know to be sin, like making a wedding cake for a same-sex marriage? How do you live out your faith when you know doing so may cost you your job because you're just a little too public about your beliefs? How do you live out your faith in school when critical race theory is taught? How do you live out your faith when colleagues or neighbors or family members want to be called they or them rather than the pronoun God gave them at birth? How do you hold fast to the certainty of God's truth in a culture that says all truth is valid and equal. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the answer to hold, how to hold fast and not give in to the tolerance Thyatira accepted is not found in our own efforts to survive. It's only found in the power of the work of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. It's not found in our works, but in His works on our behalf. It's found in a regular cycle of repenting of our insufficiencies and relying on His sufficiency. It's found in leaning on His strength, which is made perfect in our weakness. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's found in taking up the cross and following Jesus into places where our beliefs may cost us dearly, and yet where we follow him nonetheless. See, the path of least resistance, that of the new tolerance, it leads to eternal destruction. But the path of the cross, the narrow way, leads to eternal life. Which path will you follow? Would you pray with me?